seminary uh, three years ago. And with that move came a time of adjustment. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of them being the differences in culture. I mean, L.A., SF. Uh, right now, I live in Culver City, a few, few miles south of uh, UCLA, right off Venice uh, Boulevard, near Sony's, uh, Sony Studios' picture. And that shouldn't surprise some of you, because if I were to ask you what comes to your mind when I say L.A., it's very likely that some of you might be thinking about Hollywood, movie, films, the entertainment industry, actors, actresses, and celebrity culture. And speaking of movies or television series, there's something called in movies an unseen character. And this is what script writers like to call, or from what I gathered from Wikipedia, in theater, comic films, or television, there are these characters that are referred to, but not necessarily directly um, one that advances the action of the plot in a significant way. But they're unseen, but they actually do uh, advance the plot and whose absence enhances their effect on the plot. And I bring this up because sometimes I feel like we treat God uh, in the same way, as an unseen character. He's one of those unseen characters in the book of Judges. And we focus more only on human people uh, because they seem more to us more visible. Yet today we're going to see that we're going to be challenged with the fact that God's power shines through in today's passage. And we're going to see that he is very much visible in the book of Judges. Uh, I'd like to begin our time with a time of prayer, and then we'll get straight into our, our passage uh, today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for uh, the opportunity to come before your word. I pray that you would help our hearts um, to receive your word, that we would be humble. I pray that your spirit would uh, grant us um, illumination to bring forth clarity on uh, this long passage, Lord, but a very uh, helpful and fruitful passage for our lives. And help us to not only see the theology of the text, but even begin to work in our hearts. Uh, uh, that, that tug of conviction uh, to help us to apply this truth about you, God. About your, your greatness, your power, and how you are worthy of, of all devotion and worship. Uh, because you are the God of all creation. Uh, you have no beginning nor end. You are the Alpha and Omega, Lord, and I pray that that would be on our mindset tonight, Lord. We pray these things and ask that in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 5 is uh, paired with Judges 4. And while Judges 4 tells the story of God's uh, provision in prose form, Judges 5 uh, sings the story of God's provision in poetry. And Judges 5 is essentially a victory song, a song of, of victory, a, a song of triumph. And how I like to compare the two chapters is this. Judges 5 is like a story that transforms into a, a musical where the singer emphasizes certain uh, words and tone. And in essence, Judges 5 complements Judges 4 really well. Like peanut butter jelly, or for some of you uh, who are more cool and, and hip than me, avocado and toast. And by the way of review, uh, judges were human representatives, uh, and they were raised up uh, by God's power and grace. God used these judges as human representatives that expressed the presence of God with his people. He had not left them, but was very much, very, very much still present with them. Uh, they function as, these judges function as military leaders rather uh, than the type of judge you and me probably think about 
like Judge Judy, or if you read an article about one of the appointees on the Supreme Court. But here in verse 1, we're we're brought into a musical score where uh, lead singers Deborah and Barak invite the Israelite audience to join in a collaborative song, a song of praise to God. This is a song of triumph and victory that acknowledges that God has victory and triumph over his enemy nations. It is God who ultimately delivered Israel from their oppression. And that brings us to the key idea for tonight. Uh, For those of you uh, taking notes, the key idea is that God's deliverance of sinful Israel demonstrates that he is our all-powerful king. And because of that, deserves our complete devotion and worship against all other false gods. Basically competing idols in our lives. And we'll look at five demonstrations of God's power in deliverance. The first one, the first demonstration of God's power and deliverance uh, being God's victory. God's victory praised by Deborah and Barak. We read in verse 1 through 5. If you can, turn your Bibles there. Uh, Judges chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the ESV. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, and the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Some of you might be thinking tonight, why Judges 5? Why are we covering essentially the same story as last week when Roger preached through perhaps a lengthy sermon for about one hour? I actually listened to it on Judges 4, but in poetic form for this week. We need not look any further than in verse 1 to find the answer to that question. You see, in verse 1 of Judges 5, we're introduced to the functional purpose of this whole chapter. The Judges 5 is intended to be a call to praise, uh, a call to praise God. And the reason, uh, and the reason occasion for praising God is because of his worthiness to be praised. As such, we're invited to participate and sing a song of praise to God, much like when you come to morning service on a Sunday at SF Bible You know, after pastoral prayer and and announcements, uh, you're invited by the worship leader to join in in singing. A song that functions as kind of like a call to worship. And this call to worship is a call to praise God for his character and the things that he has done. And the reason for the season of celebration here is indicated by the words, Then sang Deborah and Barak. The singing is a result of the victory God demonstrated when he delivered Israel from the Canaanite general, Sisera. In other words, this song is tied with the defeat of Sisera, and it also expresses a response of praise for God's commitment in delivering his people. That is why in verse 1 it says, on that day. This song was an emotional, it was a spontaneous, it was an immediate response to God's triumph, as we covered in Judges 4 last week. In verse 2, we come across this curious phrase, bless the Lord. And sometimes when we read this, it can be kind of uh, trippy or uh, confusing for us. 
I don't know about you, but um, growing up, I always thought that, you know, blessings, you know, come from God to us, right? After all, God is greater than us, and so uh, it should make sense that he's the one giving the blessing. He has the power to bestow blessing on inferior uh, created people like us. But what does it mean when someone inferior, such as humans created by God, you know, blesses God? A God who is superior. Kind of like when we hear the song, like one of the songs I always like to, to sing in worship is 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman. I mean, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, oh my soul, right? But what does it mean for when, it, when we try to bless the Lord? Uh, well, it means to acknowledge that the superior person is the source of power and ability that benefits others. And we acknowledge that with our words. That's what it means to bless the Lord, bless the Lord to acknowledge uh, our superior God and his power and ability in benefiting us. And this is the reason why Deborah and Barak here are able to bless the Lord. It's because their blessing to God is essentially a song of praise uh, to God in acknowledgement of his worthiness to be praised. Deborah, Barak, and, his, and the people, God's people, sing because they acknowledge that God is the one that worked in the hearts of his people by drawing them to willingly step up to battle. And this enthusiastic involvement of Israel's leaders and, and general people is yet another, another evidence of God's working hand. While God's people were willing to fight, Deborah and Barak understood that the real victory in battle and the one desiring of praise was God. Just when Deborah and Barak seeks to praise God, they do so expressively without any uh, concern with what other people are going to think. No fear of man. Look with me at verse 3. Deborah and Barak summon the kings and the other leaders of four nations to essentially listen as, De as Deborah appraises God. Uh, we know this is referring to foreign kings and leaders because at this time, Israel didn't have a human king yet. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were at like a championship game of a very important sport, and I'm not going to mention anyone in particular, I would not be happy about singing a song or being called to sing a song that celebrates the victory of an enemy team or an opposing team that I'm not a fan of, right? Like, do I really want to sing along or, or hear, we are the champions, if I'm the one that lost or, I, or the team that I love or idolize lost, right? It's like adding salt to your wounds. And this is what the Canaanites must have felt when Israel triumphed over them and the God that they worshipped, Baal, or Baal. Yet that is what Deborah's blessing to God was. Her song was ultimately a song of praise to God rather than any human. And God's battle with foreign rulers such as Canaan was a test to, to demonstrate that, you know, it's ultimately God that rules over Israel rather than King Jabin of the Canaanites. Everyone needed to know the awesome power and victory of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now that the purpose of the song of, of the praise of God is, is clarified, Deborah gets into the really nitty-gritty specifics of who Yahweh is and what he accomplished that's deserving of praise and her devotion. Verses 4 to 5 reveals that God is like a powerful divine warrior that marches from Seir and Edom to help his people who are in need. You see, God comes from uh, the south to come fight for his people. Like a warrior hero uh, who arrives to the scene of the heat of the battle. 
at a critical moment. Uh, better than any legendary hero in the action kung fu flick uh, that comes onto the scene to save someone from a, a cruel villain or army, or the Avenger who arrives to the scene and stirs the audience to cheer their arrival to do battle against Thanos. Here the mighty God of Israel has come to do battle on behalf of Israel. And in the ending of verse 5, God is once again described as the God of Israel whose presence was made known at Mount Sinai. Uh, This would have recalled for his people like a blast from the past, a time when God established his covenant with Israel. And he displayed his power through lightning bolts and and thunder uh, that left Israel shaking in the fear of the Lord at the base of that mountain. But God wasn't stuck at Sinai and unable to help Israel at this present moment in time. No, God shows that he comes again and again to care and aid for his people, even in the present. And such as against the enemies of Israel and the forces of Sisera and Canaan. You see, God is close to his people and always ready to rescue them, to deliver them, to save them. And just like me and you can trust in the mighty power of God and praise him. The earth, the heavens, the sky, the elements all give heed to the sovereign God of Israel. God's triumphant victory is the reason for praise and the first demonstration of God's power in delivering his people. While Judges 4 highlighted God's commitment in delivering his people, as you guys covered last week, Judges 5, as we're going to see, as we've seen so far and we'll cover more, highlights God's power in delivering his people. Now let's look at the second uh, demonstration of God's power in deliverance. And the second demonstration is seen in God's purposes achieved through human weakness. God's purposes achieved through human weakness. Verse 6 to 7 reads, In the days of Shamgar, uh, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers seized in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother of Israel. See, before Deborah is raised up as a judge to deliver God's people, we're drawn into this historical period of Shamgar, another judge who wielded an ox go like a champ and slayed 600 Philistines in chapter 3, verse 31. And then Jael, the silent assassin with her tent pegs of death, is also mentioned along with Shamgar. All of this is to draw our minds into the context in which God's people lived at that time. A reminder of the sign of the times and what God ultimately delivered or saved Israel from. You see, the main pathways of travel to get from one place to another were abandoned. Uh, They were deserted and no one would have known uh, another person or seen another person for miles. Uh, Much like if you tried to drive from a rural area uh, through a rural area on a highway. It was more deserted than I-5 between NorCal and SoCal. This is more like, you know, one of those drives through the desert to get to Palm Springs or Las Vegas. For Israel, this was a time of weakness. It demonstrated, demonstrated by the abandoned use of these main roads, these main highways. And instead, they opted out for longer, less efficient paths, caravan routes that weave through the land of Palestine that linked northern Israel with their their brothers in the south. And that's like taking the Pacific Coast Highway to get the SF to LA instead of the 280 to I-5 South. Or taking the Golden Gate Bridge to get to Berkeley instead of the Bay Bridge, okay? And in verse 7, the word seized is repeated. 
and it gives the idea of holding back or refraining. And the reason why Israel abandoned the highways and they opted uh, to take the byways was because of a fear of attack or toll extortion that would have been demanded by the Canaanites who had control over the area and patrol the direct highways of travel. You see, for Israel, this meant that the roads, you know, were not safe. They viewed themselves as fragile in comparison with the stronger Canaanites, paralyzed from the fears and dangers of traveling and, and being, a, being attacked. Many Israelite villagers probably decided to stay home instead of going out to the fields and trade among the other, other tribes of Israel. Indicating, indicated verse 7 when it says, villagers seized in Israel. It was a time when the northern tribes were likely completely cut off from their fellow southern Israelite brethren, since Canaanites had a stronghold on Jezreel Valley, which was where the direct routes of travel were, the highways. But yet, despite Israel's depressing situation, there was a ray of hope. The turning point where we see God not far and distant, but actually very close and actually very present, uh, was when Deborah arose and this is God's intervention and break into the crisis that Israel was facing. Remember that in chapter 4, verse 1, the people of, of Israel, uh, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they were rightfully disciplined by God. And God disciplined them by giving them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, the people they were supposed to conquer. Yet God saw their oppression and heard their cry for help. And he compassionately delivered them. He saved them. From their oppression. These were the circumstances and times behind Deborah's rise as a leader, a judge of Israel. Deborah is seen here as a mother of Israel. You see, God provided the people of Israel a judge who was going to be a protective mother of Israel and committed to Israel's interests and well-being. We read in verse 8, if you look with me, when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? Now, stop right there. Uh, I don't know about uh, you, but this is sort of a confusing phrase at first glance. Uh, they did what? They chose new gods? And this verse kind of boggles your mind, uh, and this boggles some scholars, too, on how to translate this. Uh, one commentator believes that this phrase refers to a God choosing new leaders uh, for Israel. So the, the gods here actually really means leaders. Um, Another commentator thinks that God here is calling out Israel for choosing new gods. And it seems kind of nonsensical or it doesn't make sense because the present context is a song that supposedly praises the victory of God. So why would we, you know, accuse them? Yet if we take the text at face value, we must seek the plain and normative sense first. Instead of trying to meander our way towards uh, perhaps a more comfortable position, uh, interpretation uh, that's more comfortable for us. A position that doesn't challenge maybe our initial sensibilities. You see, God's word wasn't written to agree with us, but to renew our minds and conform us to his truth and for us to take God at his word. And taking God at his word means assessing the state of Israel from God's vantage point, from his perspective, through the worldview lens of biblical truth. And the truth is that Israel really did choose new gods. Throughout the book of Judges, that has been the exact indictment against God's chosen people. That they had not obeyed God's voice. 
Rather, they compromised by not fully taking over the land. They became like their enemies. They did not drive out the foreign evil nations, even though God already told them that the land was given to them by, by, by God. You backtrack to Judges 2, verses 11 through 12. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. It reads, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord in anger. They essentially abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. Defeated by the Canaanite forces and turning to Canaanite gods instead of remembering their God at Sinai. Comfort with the enemy led to compromise with the enemy. And it is said that they made treaties with Canaan, given the fact that Israel worshipped Canaanite idols. Yet even in their compromise, even in their turning away from the Lord, it says here in our current verse, uh, war was in the gates. And this was the consequence of their compromise in turning away from God and worshiping foreign idols. Canaanite leaders didn't honor the treaties they made and probably included unbalanced uh, sanctions or more demands on Israel, which pressured them into a corner. And Israel found themselves without weapons and military, uh, militarily unprepared as they watched the enemies advance and grow in power. Yet in this circumstance, this point where Israel finds themselves stuck in a hole with very little hope against their oppressors, that God actually steps in. He intervenes. It is here that we find God's people, hopeless and weak as they are, where we also see God's power in accomplishing his purposes. In a moment of desperation, God shows that he is, he's actually sufficient and that comfort and rest can be found in him. Like the battle of Jericho, this battle will, not, uh, will be won not in self-reliance uh, on Israel's own effort, but by God in spite of their human inadequacy and weakness. Verse 9 through 11 reads, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord, tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the, ground, to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. So uh, these verses uh, express Deborah's pride and approval in Israel while also simultaneously praising God for Israel's response. Israel was willing to, to step up to the plate and do battle with the enemy. And Deborah really expresses here her, her admiration for these leaders of the troops who are willing to lead God's people into battle. The Canaanites are called out in verse 10 when Deborah taunts and trolls uh, those who are on white donkeys or sit on rich carpets or who use normal highways that Israelites uh, were afraid to use. Now, while the wealthy and rich Canaanite merchants formerly were, were, uh, were able to trade, and rich Canaanites were able to travel on expensive donkeys, you know, uh, dressed with the finest luxurious blankets on this, these main roads, their lives were about to be turned upside down. They, once thinking their luxurious and comfortable life uh, was safe, quickly find out that it's very much in God's hands. And now the Canaanites' security is turned to insecurity as they are called to reflect and consider the works of God on behalf of his people. You see, Deborah is calling those Canaanites now down in the dumps to sing along with the victors, the people of Israel. 
And it's important to note that while the primary focus of this passage is on God, this story speaks about God's divine work through human people, human responsibility. How do the humans respond? And that touches at the core of all of us and how we respond to God. Conversations and celebrations of victory uh, took place at a place called these watering holes, uh, which are likely wells or springs or pools of water. In our modern-day context, it's probably the equivalent to Golden Gate Park, you know, which serves as a community gathering place uh, for celebrations or where gossip exchanged by pack-height mommies, you know, while old seniors feed ducks with moldy bread that, they, that expired uh, from their last Costco run. And all that to say that people will be talking about the Lord, even the traveling Canaanite tourists who visit uh, these, these watering areas will hear about God's victory and join in in the celebration. And that brings us now to the, the third demonstration of God's power and deliverance, God's empowerment of willing and faithful people found in verses 11 through 18. Uh, look with me at, verse, at the end of verse uh, 11. It reads, Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Following you, the, following you Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah. And Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistlings for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. Uh, there's a lot going on here with a lot of Israelite tribes named. So let's see if we can kind of put this together and get at the sense of what these verses mean. Uh, the first thing that we notice is that, you know, the people of God responded to the call to battle. The people of God marched down to the gates, which refers to fortified cities of the, of the Canaanite lands, because Israelites lived up in the hills and they had to go down to face the Canaanites in the cities in the plain land. <clears throat> Here they truly are acting like God's people because they actually heed God's call. They respond to God's call against the Canaanites, living in what was likely walled cities with a gate. And Deborah fulfills the role as a prophetess here by calling on the people of Israel on God's behalf to do battle while Barak here is summoned to function as a battle commander. And as we move from verse 12 and on, this song crescendos in excitement and anticipation as various tribes heed the call and join in forces in the battle against the Canaanites. And in verse 13, the Israelite forces are referred to as the remnant or the people of the Lord. Uh, these were survivors of the Canaanite oppression who stepped up to battle even when they seemingly would have a disadvantage. And while the noble and mighty refer to the enemy Canaanites, the Canaanites would seem to have the upper hand here, as they would have uh, been given those elevated titles to signify the significance of their military power. You know, noble, mighty. 
But when Deborah calls, tribes step up to the plate. At this point, Ephraim, the tribe that Deborah belonged to, came to fight. Next were the Benjamites, followed by the commanders of Machir. And Machir was the oldest son of Manasseh and Gilead's father. Also given attention was Issachar's help. This tribe that was praised for standing along or standing by Deborah and their loyalty to Barak. And Zebulun in verse 18 also joined. Now when these tribal forces of Israel is joined together, they charge into the valley of Jezreel to face the Canaanites. And hopefully that's when your map in the back of your note sheet comes in handy kind of to kind of show you where the battle actually takes place. It's kind of like that squiggly thing for, for battle. Notice here in the verses, not all the tribes were praised. You see, while some volunteered and stepped up to the plate, risking their lives, some tribes actually resisted. And there's much disappointment towards these tribes who decide to play it safe with their lives. The clan of Reuben is the first clan to be called out in verses 15 and 16. Their non-participation makes it seem like they were still reflecting on the wisdom of maybe joining in and helping out. But we clearly see here in verse 16 that they're rebuked for their idleness. As if they couldn't be bothered by what's going on with the other tribes, their brothers, their brethren. And decided instead to just sit around while listening to songs from shepherd's pipes that make these whistling noises. It's as if there's not a care about their brother next door. Risking their lives while Reuben's tribe sits in the comfort of their land. They may have had a second thought about helping indicated by this this phrase, searchings of heart, but ultimately they refuse to participate. The same for Gilead, Dan, and, and Asher. They were too preoccupied with their trade business and economic well-being. In other words, they were too busy, too busy to get involved with their fellow people and what God had called them to do. They were too busy for self and lazy for God. And this teaches us a very important principle that applies even today, that God uses and empowers a willing and faithful servants to do his will and work. Though God is sovereign in bringing his people together and accomplishing his will, that is never at the expense of human responsibility of heeding his calling and yielding our lives to him. Pastor and Old Testament commentator, uh, Dale Ralph Davis writes, it speaks ill of us when we are satisfied to rest secure while our brothers and sisters are struggling and suffering. It reveals a heart unbound by the bonds of brotherly love. It is tragic when any Christian, apostle or other, has to say, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. That's Paul speaking, 2 Timothy 4.16. You know, perhaps many of you right now find yourselves in a season, a season of busyness. A time where it seems like you have so much going on concerning yourself, your own uh, personal life. And maybe for some of you, that's career or school. You know, maybe you're thinking, I can't be used by God right now because I have a list of things I want to accomplish for myself first. Granted, there are valid exceptions to this, but many of you are also in the season in, in life where you have more time as singles to steward for the Lord with undivided devotion without distraction, as it says in 1 Corinthians. Notice how busyness or preoccupation with other things was not seen as a valid reason here for some of these tribes of Israel. Their non-participation and not helping their fellow brethren out. And it shouldn't be said of Christians, believers, 
a Christian believer is today either. And more can be said about that, but not to maybe detract too much further. I'd like for us now to look at the fourth demonstration of God's power in deliverance. And the fourth demonstration of God's power in uh, deliverance is seen in God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty over natural elements. The kings came, as we read in verse 19. They fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, the galloping of his steeds. Curse Moroz, Moroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty. Every year I participate in uh, March Madness, as I'm sure many of you guys do, for fun, with coworkers, um, with, with friends. Uh, no money, in case you think I'm like you know, gambling, sports betting. I don't really do that stuff, or I don't do that stuff. And like any of you who watch any form of competitive sports, there's always going to be those upsets that will ruin your brackets or fantasy teams, such as the case when everyone had Duke winning in the final, or the, the final championship, and I, thinking I could play the smart contrarian play, chose UNC, University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill. And neither of those teams made it to the championship game. And all of that goes to show that we really are not in control of our lives and that the best statisticians have their limitations. They can't perfectly predict, perfectly control uh, what will happen because ultimately God is in control. In verses 19 to 23, we witness a great upset in the war between Israel and Canaan. This is a truly remarkable and supernatural, uh, where a, 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 truly, a truly remarkable and supernatural uh, event because here, it's the underdog that upsets the reigning champ kind of story. And of course, it's all true. It's recorded for us. You know, it's reflected here in God's word. And it's a Cinder- Cin- much like a Cinderella story concerning God's people. In verse 19, we're brought to this uh, climactic battle between uh, Israel and Canaanite armies. Uh, verse 19 is focused on uh, the kings of Canaan and their actions. Adding poetic repetition, we see that this is a battle between kings here. Although Jabin was the king of Canaan, the plural here, kings instead of king, the plural of multiple kings indicates that there were other leaders under Jabin who functioned as uh, kings of Canaanite city-states who also answered the call to war uh, under General Sisera. And this was a battle against or between God, the ultimate king and sovereign ruler of all creation, so here we have God, the ultimate king and sovereign ruler of all creation versus the Canaanite kings, uh, Jabin and, his, and the idol gods that they worship. This battle was a test to show who truly was God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, or the God of the Canaanites, Baal. And for those of you who have perhaps watched too much Star Wars, you might be thinking that Israel actually had the advantage here, right, since they had the high ground in the hills, Mount Tabor. But unfortunately, uh, popular movie memes posted on Facebook aren't always exactly the best predictors or basis for guessing who's going to win a war. 
after all, let's not forget the siege of Masada. For those of you here, maybe are a history bus, was part of the first Jewish-Roman war that ended with a siege against the Jewish fortress at Masada, whom also had the high ground, but ultimately lost against the superior Roman army. And as the battle nears here in verse 19, it brings us into the scene where these Canaanite forces gather, sort of like a hub, if you look at your maps in in the back, or a meeting space for all the Canaanite forces in a place called Tanakh. And though it's not listed in that map on the back, it is near Megiddo, which should be uh, listed, which is sort of like this uh, little lake with a a river, Uh, and they're kind of to the left of it. And they wait there until Barak calls his forces to go down uh, Mount Tabor and converge at the plains of Jezreel Valley, which is basically the flatland, you know, not the mountains. Meanwhile, the Canaanite forces leave Tanakh and pass the Kishon River and get closer to the Ezreal of Jezreel Valley, where Barak and the Israelite forces are at. Expectations would have run high or would have ran high for the Canaanite army and the superiority of their 900 chariot force. Uh, They would have expected maybe an easy win uh, and the spoils of victory, but this wasn't going to be a three-peat win for the Canaanites. They were totally unprepared for what actually happened next. God's intervention on behalf of his people in the battle. Why? Because the forces of nature and elements in this world that God controls was on Israel's side that day. Verse 20 uses vivid language of the stars from heaven fighting against Sisera. This is a descriptive of the skies above that fought against the Canaanite army led by Sisera. The skies poured down this torrential rain that swept through Kishon, which flooded the Jezreel Valley's plains with, with rain. And as a result, the ground became soft. And the horses and chariots were stuck, and they lost their tactical advantage. Suddenly, their supposed superiority showed their inferiority. It actually swept them away. The remaining Canaanite, uh, Canaanite soldiers attempted to flee, but they became easy targets for the Israelite army. Easy pickings. And the outburst of triumph that followed is captured when Deborah says, March on my soul with might. So what follows is uh, in this praise for God's sovereign power against the Canaanites and the horses uh, flailing as they attempt to escape their doom during the torrent. Kind of like in Psalm 20, a psalm of David, verse 7 says in Psalm 20, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, God is his people's help in their time of need and sovereign over their seemingly natural circumstances outside of uh, human control. And in the midst of Israel's circumstances, God's supernatural control dictated the outcome of this battle in favor of the Israelites. Verse 23 then transitions from the battle back to the sad reality that uh, not everyone in Israel helped out in the battle and responded to God's call. The angel of Yahweh here approves of a curse on the people of Moraz for not helping out in the battle with fellow Israelites against Canaanites. And this contrasts what follows through J.L.'s help uh, when compared to the passivity and the unwillingness of this people group called Moroz. Now, I would like for us to look at the fifth and final demonstration of God's power and deliverance. And it's through this. God's destruction of his enemies for his people. God's destructions, uh, destruction of his enemies for his people. And that's found in verses 24 to, to 31, the ending. 
Verse 24 reads, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, the Kenite of tent-dwelling woman most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. As you have already uh, covered last week when Roger preached, Jael was uh, the one that drove the tent peg that ended the life of Sisera, the general of, of Jabin, the king of the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the Canaanites, with Sisera being the general. While chapter 4 gives us a historical account of that fact, here in Judges 5, this song praises Jael for her act. In fact, the shocking thing is that it goes into painstaking detail of what Jael did to Sisera. It's like a, one of those slow motion, slow motion theatrical replays of what transpired. Uh, maybe like some of how you, some of you guys like to watch, you know, sports injuries, you know, horrific slow motion replays of, of injuries and go like, ooh, to these athletes. And this confronts many of us because, you know, we would rather see the killing of Sisera and the detailed description to be that of someone who, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't expect someone to take sick pleasure or savagery in the death of, uh, in the death of others. Um, but the fact here is that Deborah refers to Jael as most blessed. And that means that she did what, what she did was seen in a positive light. It was a heroic military act since God um, is the one who is the hero of this story. Using human instruments to accomplish his will, we understand that it's ultimately God who destroys his enemies. The enemies of his people while also bringing salvation to his people. This is something that should be enjoyed and cherished, much like it seems like it's enjoyed and cherished in the song here. Cherishing the salvific deliverance of God's people through the destruction of the enemy's general. Now, many of you probably enjoy uh, hipster coffee shops or, or food. Uh, why? Because you cherish, you know, and you, you savor uh, the quality of, of specialty coffee uh, to slowly slosh that Chemex pour over, or, uh, over different parts of your, your, your mouth, your, your tongue, your palate, to see if you can maybe pick up on different, different flavors and nuances of, of, of tasting notes of that bean and where it was sourced, where, where its origin was from. And then maybe the same thing for some of you who are, who are foodies, you know. I actually follow some of you guys on Instagram, so I know some of you guys spend a lot of money on food, uh, which is okay, you know. Uh, I, I do too. So uh, the same thing for foodies who, <clears throat> who like Instagram every meal that you eat just to let the world know how FOMO they should feel because they're not a part of that meal, you know, and they're, they're, they're totally missing out on that experience with you. And, you know, when you take a snapshot, a camera high, you know, about maybe two, three to, uh, feet uh, directly above the plate to get that perfect, you know, lighting as well as, like, the, the, uh, the perspective. And you, because you, and you appreciate the aesthetic of the presentation of the food. And, you know, the food's getting cold, but, you know, you're just prepping for it. You know, enjoying it, savoring it. You haven't even tasted a bite of that food yet, you know. And some of you even post about it. It's good before you even tried it on Instagram. Um, <laughs> so you, you, you appreciate that. And then finally, you actually get to eating the food, right? You put it in your mouth. You enjoy the textures. You enjoy the flavors. 
mixing in that bowl of maybe your favorite bowl of ramen, right? Or, your, or this, this, this new craze here in SF called uh, kaibi jim, stew, you know, but it's special because they put cheese on top, you know, and then they, they, they flame it. So that's special, you know. <laughs> and in a similar way, God's people didn't necessarily have some sort of twisted love for the savage ways of killing their enemies. Rather, this detailed, this slow motion account replay of JL killing Sisera should be seen as God's great salvation, God's great deliverance of his people in slow motion. And the salvation of God's people should be enjoyed in all its glory because it points to the compassionate giver of that deliverance, the, the one who saves, that is God. It should evoke a, a response of, of praise and, and devotion to the Lord who, who delivers, who, who saves. It should be cherished. It should be savored. It should be remembered. You see, the count of Jael is meant to help us contrast what follows, starting in verse 28. It reads in verse 28, Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Uh, why tarry the hoofbeat, hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and uh, divided the spoil? Uh, a womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. You see, in contrast to Jael, a glimpse with what is going on at the house of Sisera's mother is given to us here in these verses as we read. It's filled here with sarcasm and taunting towards Sisera's mother, who represents all the greedy Canaanites. Now, you won't find this part of the story in Judges 4, which means it has significance here because it stands out. It's a matter of emphasis. This mother is worried over her son Sisera not yet returning. She begins questioning why she hasn't heard or, or seen her son her son's chariot returning, and the outcome from our standpoint is not ironically good because her attendants and her attendants try to console her with what's probably causing the delay or, or uh, what they can expect when he does return. In fact, we see here in verse 29 that Sisera's mother, actually herself, tries to rationalize the outcome. And in doing so, she reveals her own, her own heartlessness. She's not the victim here. Verse 30 shows her heartlessness. We know that womb here refers to, to woman as spoils of war. Uh, but the Hebrew word literally does mean womb, a pair of wombs uh, for each man. And all that to, to show that Sisera's mother uh, moved from merely concern about her son's well-being to concern with what sort of spoils of war would be attained when her son returns. She rationalizes her son's delay being due to the fact that her son and other soldiers were probably have a good time, um, you know, I, I don't say this positively, but raping captive women and collecting luxurious clothing from the Israelites. But in reality, we as the reader of this song, of God's vic see this as a song of God's victory over his enemies. Because we know that Jael has already killed Sisera. At the end of the song, Morose, Jael, Sisera, and Sisera's mother uh, disappears, uh, fades into the backdrop of this song. 
And what's left here are the words found in verse 31. Uh, read with me. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the, Lord, and the land had rest for 40 years. At the conclusion of this uh, poetic chapter is a prayer and a call. A prayer and a call. Uh, the prayer is that all of God's enemies be destroyed like Sisera and the Canaanites. Yeah, it is a bit imprecatory. There are uh, imprecatory prayers in the Bible against God's enemies. And this prayer is grounded in the fact that anyone who poses Israel opposes God, the God of Israel. And what does it mean to be an enemy of God or someone who's, who opposes him? It means the person's actions, uh, the, the person's aim in life runs counter to God and God's agenda. Uh, secondly, Deborah prays for God's people, those who aren't enemies of God. Now at this point, uh, there's a translation issue. If you have an ESV, like I do, uh, right now, you'll, you'll see that it says, but your friends be like the sun. But I know many of you here at Essa Bible, me too, when I was here, uh, used the NASB, New American Standard. And it says, but let those who love him be like the rising sun. And while this is an English translation difference over how to view the original Hebrew and how to interpret to the, to the English language so that we can maybe better understand with maybe not uh, misunderstanding the, the author's meaning, regardless of the translation that we have, it refers to the same group of people. God's friends are those who love him. That is the people of Israel. In contrast to the people who hated God, the idol-worshiping Canaanites. And Deborah calls those who are, who are friends of God, those who love him, to have unhindered, uh, unreserved, uneclipsed obedience like when the sun rises in full force during the peak of the day, and it's not overshadowed by anything else, not the moon, nothing else. And this leaves a challenge for all Israelites during the time of Judges to evaluate whether they are actually living up to the calling as God's people and the covenant given to them to love God in Deuteronomy with all their heart, with all their, their, their whole life, and with everything that they have. And that call even challenges us today as believers those who profess to be believers, to be, be followers of Christ. You see, Israel was challenged to have no other gods before them and no idols. And for believers today, we have the New Testament equivalent, right? John 14, 15, where it challenges us to, to love God and to demonstrate that by our full devotion and our obedience to him. So brothers and sisters, join heirs. Will you love Yahweh, your compassionate God, the God of your salvation. I think this passage challenges us to really evaluate and examine in our lives whether we truly worship and devote our lives to the Lord. And I know we can't be perfect because we are fallen uh, sinners. Yet we're called to, to see whether in our lives we've made compromises like Israel in turning to other gods and though we don't worship a statue like Baal or Ashtaroth, these false gods were essentially idols. Anything that could take the replacement or that we prioritize or place of greater value than God. It could be our careers or things, or it could be maybe relationships or trying to get in a relationship. Or maybe for some of you, it's maybe your identity in something else. And this challenges because God here is challenging us to see and test whether we are devoted to him and that there are no other gods in our lives. 
Because him demonstrating his power in saving Israel, just like he saved us through Jesus Christ, it challenges us to worship him, to worship him fully, with no reservations. And that is the heart of the gospel call, that while we were hopeless, Christ, God's son, died on the cross on our behalf. You see, the truth and reality is that we're all naturally enemies of God. Uh, for those of you who may be visiting joint heirs or maybe here uh, at SF Bible, you know, just stepping in for the first time, really, this, this call to obedience applies to, to followers, to, to believers in Christ. Uh, but if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would compel you uh, to not just take away maybe some moral advice on, on do this, a list of do this and that to please God and earn your way to heaven, which you can't but to really consider who God claims he is and what God did. And what God did in delivering mankind for those who believe in him is send his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to live a perfect life in which we fail because we've sinned and disobeyed God. We've all turned to idols in our lives and worshiped creation rather than creator and to place our faith in Jesus Christ, his son, the one who lived a perfectly righteous life only to die on the cross as a substitute for our sin. And rose three days later so that we who believe in him might have eternal life just like Christ. And we might be reconciled to God in faith, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is my hope for you. The heart of the gospel. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we through faith might become the righteousness of God. Not out of our own righteousness, knowing that we're sinners but knowing that God saved us. And if we are saved, we are encouraged today. We have hope. We have been given God's, God's very own spirit to walk in obedience, to test our devotion to him. And that's the challenge and the message for uh, today and how God's power in salvation for God's people compels us uh, to worship him without reservation and to turn away from any false gods or idols that we may have in our lives or still struggle with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you again for your word, Lord. Uh, Judges 5 teaches us a very important lesson in the form of a song, Lord, a song of praise. And I pray that our lives would be uh, a song of praise to you, Lord. Like Romans 12, our lives would be an offering, worship to you, pleasing to you, Lord. In all that we say or do, we would seek to do your will, um, that we would evaluate and test our, our allegiance to you, Lord, so that we might not, uh, like the Israelites, have our lives tailspin out of control, going deeper and deeper into sin or worshiping with greater affection in our hearts uh, uh, the idols of this world, Lord, whatever that may be for us, Lord. Challenge us and convict us through your spirit, Lord, and help us to really evaluate, but also give us the strength uh, to fight out inferior worship with greater worship in you, God. We ask these things knowing that we're dependent on your grace for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.